Good morning. Our sermon passage for this morning is Exodus 16, 1 through 36. Please read along with me. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, I will be, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall go, you shall know that it, it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. 
So they laid it aside till the next morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he, has, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the 10th part of an ephah. Well, one of the most wonderful things about God's word, one of the things that makes me most excited about this book is that it's all one story. So in any good story or a good movie, we expect the creator, the author, the director to bring in themes, hints, pictures along the way at the beginning, in the middle of the story, which he then kind of uses as a thread to then fill out later an even greater display. That's one of the marks of good storytelling. And that's exactly what we see in Scripture over and over again. So throughout this book, made of so many different stories, written by so many different authors, the one sovereign author, God himself, is threading all those stories together to create a big story. A story containing those little themes, those little hints along the way. That then he takes a crescendo to this high pitch of truth in the gospel. See, the Bible is not just an anthology of diverse works of ancient literature in the Jewish and Christian traditions. The Bible is one whole story by one author telling one ultimate message. And this morning in the passage Jason just read really well for us, we see one of those themes, those hints, and just a thumbnail sketch that is then developed through the rest of Scripture. And that theme, that hint, is the one of bread. Bread supplied by God from heaven for needy people, saving them from death. So we're working our way through the book of Exodus, written by Moses, concerning God's people Israel over about 3,500 years ago. Uh, Israel has been brought out of slavery, if you'll remember, from Egypt by the power of Yahweh. That's the personal name for the God of Israel, shown in your English translations as Lord in all caps. And now this Yahweh has led them into the wilderness, and as we saw last week, it's beginning to be really hard. It's difficult. Yet in the hardship of the wilderness, Israel 
begins to learn even more who God is and who they are. And this morning, we see particularly that they see and learn that God is a God of grace. Three things we see about God's grace this morning. First, grace for grumblers. Grace for grumblers. Second, grace sufficient. Grace sufficient. And then third, grace to come. Grace to come. So first, grace for grumblers. Look there in verse 1. So Israel is set out from Elam, which was that wonderful kind of resort center we saw in the last verse of chapter 15. And now they come to what's called the wilderness of sin. That has nothing to do with sin in the English language. Remember, this is not the English language. This is a proper name for a wilderness. So don't read too much into that. That's kind of cool anyway. Some people think sin is related to the word Sinai, right, which is where they're going. And at this point, it seems they've already been out of Egypt for well over a month and now they're facing hunger. So last week they were facing thirst. Now they have no food. So look at verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. We saw them grumbling last week, didn't we? We'll see them grumbling again next week, Lord willing, in chapter 17. But I think if you think about it here again, as we read them grumbling, I think we can be sort of sympathetic to them and to their plight. Don't you think? I I mean, this is a matter of life and death. I don't know if any of you have come close to literally starving or thirsting to death, but I think this is a pretty good reason to grumble. The complaint is to be expected. But what's the heart behind their complaint? Look there in verse 3. We get a clearer view into their hearts because they say to Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died! By the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, wow, right? You're ratcheting it up a notch. Israel is now standing in condemnation over those who have delivered them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, Moses and Aaron. They see them no longer as deliverers from death, but deliverers to death, and an even worse kind of death. I mean, at least if they had stayed in Egypt, they would have died with full bellies, they say, because that death is so much easier, apparently. Seems like they've taken an almost rosy-complexioned view of life in Egypt, doesn't it? They had so often cried for deliverance from this place, and now God has saved them with these amazing signs and wonders, and they wish it never happened. At least they had meat and bread for the taking in Egypt. As one author puts it, it is easier to take Israel out of Egypt than to take Egypt out of Israel. See, this grumbling is ultimately unbelief. It's unbelief that God's plan for their salvation had indeed worked and that it was for their best. Perhaps perhaps even unbelief that God is still with them at all. Grumbling, Christian, is never objectless. It's never aimless. Complaining is always aimed at something or someone. And for Israel, their grumbling is first and foremost aimed not at Moses and Aaron, but at Yahweh. We see that midway through verse 8. 
Moses says, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. See, see as, one, as one author really helped me see this past week, Yahweh was the one who had delivered them from Egypt. Moses and Aaron were just chosen instruments in Yahweh's hand. And so if the Israelites are really going to be honestly angry at not being in Egypt anymore, then they need to be angry fundamentally at Yahweh. It's a good reminder for us, church family, to remember that our sin so often devastates the lives of those around us, but ultimately the truth is that our sin is first and foremost against the Lord. I mean, think, for example, of King David in Psalm 51. You might remember he says there at the beginning of his, his psalm of confession, he says to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And do you remember what David had done? He had committed assault and murder and cover-up. Heinous things. And while he while he doesn't say he didn't wrong those victims, he does say who he's ultimately sinned against, and that's God. His sin is only sinful because it's an offense ultimately to God who condemns sin. Because it's ultimately not breaking the law of Israel, but the law of Yahweh. Because it's not, only pollu- not ultimately polluting the worship of Israel, but the holiness of Israel's God. Dear church, I wonder if we would take our sin more seriously if we remembered more often that it's ultimately against God that we sin and God alone. Take grumbling, for example, something we're really good at. I mean, just take a look at social media. I'm not saying your accounts, but I'm not saying, just saying. So look at your Twitter feeds, your Instagram stories. And if you have nothing else to say, if there's nothing else exciting happening in your life, 50% of the time, I think we kind of resort to just grumbling about something, right? Man, there are six people ahead of me in the line at Starbucks. Can't believe it. What what has become of this world? I I read one article this past week. I don't think it was from a Christian site, but it made some really good points. So it had a list of, I think, 16 things that we complain about too much. My favorite was waking up in the morning. So here's what the article says. Indeed, it can be a grueling process. But what, would you have rather not woken up? Considering all the stuff that could possibly go wrong in every passing second, we should probably begin each day jumping for joy that everything we know is still intact. Since that'll never happen, we can at least try to hold off on scoffing at another day of existence. They're trying to be funny, and they've succeeded, but they're actually hitting on something super true. Each day, each second is a gift of grace from God, the creator. And yet, as Christians, we'll take something even as good as that and find something to complain about. And I think as, as, ch- as a church, as church people, grumbling is one of our respectable sins, isn't it? It's easy when you're in an accountability group or you're in a women's Bible study or the men's boot camp that we started up just being like, yeah, I'm just complaining a lot. Because it, I don't know, just makes you look like a normal person. Life is hard. It's difficult. And yes, I think in those settings especially, there needs to be room for talking about what's irritating us and what's tempting us to complain. And there needs to be room to being honest with each other without just being like, you're grumbling, right? 
But this kind of grumbling, I think that we see in Exodus is different. This kind of grumbling doesn't look to God for an answer. It accuses God without even wanting an answer. It's unbelief. It's against the Lord. Christian, what have you grumbled about this past week? You can ask your your spouse. I'm sure they'll be able to inform you. But you can also just look at your words. Your words are a window into your heart. What have you said? More than that, what has your heart felt? Are you a grumbler? Are you discontent with where God has placed you in your life? Do you struggle to believe that his plan is actually for your best? The amazing thing about being in a church where we constantly focus on the gospel and scripture is that it doesn't end with just don't grumble. Because look what God does in response to his people's grumbling in verse 4. This is amazing. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Not judgment, not anger, but exactly what they need. So in the response to the unbelief and even the accusation of his people against him, God shows what? He shows grace. Grace, by definition, is not merited. It's not deserved, and nowhere is that clearer than right here, folks. God's people are sinning against him, despising his plan to deliver them, disbelieving his sovereign control and salvation, and yet what does he do? He provides for them. Remember the last time he had rained something down? It was hail on Egypt in judgment. Now he rains down bread on people who deserve judgment. Not because they deserve it, but because of his covenant grace. We see there in verse 4 that in all of this, God is continuing to test his people. We saw that last week. He's testing them. Will they believe? Will they trust? Will they walk in his law? Will they walk in obedience? And he's sending this sign again to show them. Remember why he sent his signs on Egypt. He sent his signs on Egypt to show them that he was the one true God. Now he's doing it again for his people to show them that he is Yahweh. He is the Lord who has brought them out from slavery. He is the one true God. He has not abandoned them. He has not left them. He has not lost control. He will see his salvation through to the end. He is gracious to sinners. There in verse 13 and following, we see that all God had said he would do, he does. His promises hold true. He does provide. And that leads us to our second point this morning. Grace that is sufficient. Because God gives the meat and the bread that his people had just cried out for. And it's just astonishing how he does it. It's a miraculous event. So in the evening, we don't sure exactly how this happened, but apparently quail fly into the tent uh, and they're sluggish enough and, and low enough that you can start grabbing them with your hand. And then the next morning... After the dew dissipates, all over the ground, Israel sees this, what's called in verse 14, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Sometime this coming month, I hope, because I I like cold weather, judge me later, 
but I hope we start seeing frost in October, right? And you know what frost is like. You walk out and the, the grass is just coated with this beautiful, shiny, shimmery, almost like spider webby appearance of, of moisture. It's frozen. It, it's beautiful. Can you imagine going out there and, be, and, and seeing that on the desert floor? In verse 15, the Israelites can't imagine it. They see it and they say, what is it? A phrase in Hebrew that sounds like the word manna. We see in verse 31 that manna is what the, this bread is eventually called. So for the next 40 years, Israel will eat what is it off the, the floor, the ground. And as it's distributed and collected then, we see an important truth about God's gracious provision. Look in verse 16. Yahweh commands, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in your tent. So the process begins of collection on the first day they've seen this. Uh, we still see some people, you know, whose eyes are bigger than their stomachs and they, they gather a lot. Others gather less. Yeah, in verse 18, when they bring all their supplies back and they measure it all up, Somehow each tent has just enough for everyone. Roughly a, a single omer, that's about two quarts for each person. So they can take it and they can bake it up into cakes and eat it and everyone is filled. See, God's grace and his gift of grace is sufficient for his people's needs. It's enough. It's not short of what they need and it's not more than what they need. It's everything they need. The manna is daily provision. So in verse 20, when Moses commands that they take just enough for a day, some typical Israelites, typical us, disobey and leave some for the next day. I can store up some of God's grace for the next day. But it goes bad. Maggots. Ugh. It's inedible. And then when Moses and the people learn they must observe the Sabbath and not gather manna on that day, God provides double the amount, and that doesn't go bad, believe it or not. See, God demands what he supplies, and he supplies what he demands. He demands obedience and then gives his people the strength and the opportunity to obey. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that God decides to provide only enough for a day at a time. This is a way we see in which God is testing his people. He's teaching them what it looks like day by day in the wilderness to depend on him, to obey him, to trust him. You see, those who try to get around his law and his instruction and store up food just prove their own unbelief. Unbelief that is as good as worm-infested manna. Tim Chester puts it like this. Manna requires you to trust that God will provide today, and then again tomorrow, and then again the day after. There is no alternative but to trust that God will provide tomorrow. Christian, do you trust God like that? 
Do you believe his grace is enough for you today, right now, with everything that is burdening you right now? Not tomorrow, not next week, not when things improve at home, not when you feel better about your circumstances, but right now. Are you depending on him now? Scripture is clear. It's not unwise to be concerned about the future. In fact, as Christians, our focus is always eternity-oriented. But in the present, in the now, we must continue to understand that we're being tested in preparation for the promised land, matured by a God who loves us and loves us so much that he knows we're going to get the greatest joy if we depend on him. So he's going to send us hardship and need and daily dependence so that we learn the lesson. He's out for our joy. We walk in dependence on him for everything. That, Christian, is how we walk in the wilderness. We walk in humble obedience and submission and trust. So, Christian, are you conscious this morning of your dependence, your need, And are you okay with that? Are you okay when you see how dependent you are? Or are you the kind of person that's just like, okay, I see that, now I'm going to solve it. Now I'm going to make it go away. That's not God's plan. God's grace is sufficient for you right now. And it will be again tomorrow. And the day after that. That's not for you to control, it's for him to provide. He only calls you to walk daily, moment by moment, in faith and trust. Do you know that God's grace is sufficient for you? Beyond just mere word, like mouth, confession, but in your heart? Do you believe that he's sufficient for you not only when things are going swell, but when you're weak and needy? What you're going through right now? God's grace is sufficient. It comes every day like manna. Final thing to consider then. So grace for grumblers, grace is sufficient. Finally, grace to come. So in, in there at the end of the passage, it's a long passage, there's so much here to see, but zoom ahead to the, the end of the passage. And in verses 31 to 36, we see kind of uh, what one author calls kind of the imp- appendix, Right? That's showing the big picture. So obviously this isn't all happening chronologically because he's talking about the next 40 years. For the next 40 years, God will provide this kind of manna every single morning for his people. They're in obedience to his command. Uh, they would later take some of that manna and they store it away in a, in a jar in, in the Ark of the Covenant, which hasn't been crafted yet, but will be later in Exodus And that jar of manna will remind them of his grace and faithfulness in their need. Christian, we too take bread to remember, don't we? At the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate next week, Lord willing, we're going to be reminded as we take the bread and ingest it of God's provision for us in Christ. Uh, But what of grace to come? We, We started off by thinking about how this whole book called the Bible is one complete story, right? But how is that, how is that true here with this theme of bread? 
Well, remember what Peter read for us earlier in John chapter 6. So there Jesus is ministering, uh, and he's just done something miraculous. He's fed thousands of people with bread, and it's been sufficient. They've had their fill. Sounds kind of familiar. Jesus is showing that, like Moses, he is able to provide food for God's people. But that's kind of where the similarities between Moses and Jesus start to fade away. In verse 31, the the crowds come to Jesus looking for bread, and they, they kind of talk about their forefathers who had eaten manna in the wilderness and how God had rained down bread from heaven for them. And then Jesus, in verse 32, says something that must have just blown their socks off. Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, who's this bread? Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is showing that not only is he the second Moses, but he's the greater Moses. God's people in the wilderness in Exodus 16 needed food or else they would die. And God rained down food from heaven for them. But then 1,500 years later, he sends a greater prophet with greater bread. He sends Jesus, his son. Jesus comes to be eternal food for his people, to save them from death and give them life. We sang earlier, bread of heaven. Feed me till I want no more. That bread is Christ. And we ask him to feed us until we want no more. There is a depth of sustenance in Christ. He never runs out. He is sufficient. Jesus is God's provision for sinners, for grumblers like you and me. We see that. It's just amazing to me in John 6. Because Jesus is talking about this bread stuff, and the Jews knew kind of what it looked like in Exodus 16. They knew that story. And, and guess what happens to the Jews as they listen to his words? <laughs> they grumble. Probably be, be, you know, if they know the story, they're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? We're repeating the story. We're grumbling just like the Israelites. And yet Jesus comes to those grumblers, to those sinners, to us as God's gift of grace. Jesus comes as God's sufficient provision. Jesus comes as the one who is enough, whose blood shed for sinners is enough, whose salvation is enough for his people. See, if you're here this morning and you're a human being, you have hunger. And not just a normal kind of mid-Sunday, pre one o'clock football games, want chips and guac quarter, sort of tummy grumbles, right? Grumbles. Now you had this sort of deep soul hunger for meaning and fulfillment and joy and hope. Everyone does. 
And in your sin, in my sin, we try and we try and we try to satisfy that meaning and fulfillment and joy and hope in everything except God. That's what sin is. We try to fill ourselves up on our jobs, on our careers, which will eventually just fade away, on our money, which could go in an instant, on vacations, which end, on lust for food and sex and power, on craving affection from others. I mean, we we get married to find ultimate satisfaction, and then we get divorced to find ultimate satisfaction. We try and we try and we try, and somehow we just always come up empty. It's like we're missing something, missing something we were created for. And what we see here is that Jesus is ultimately the only thing that's sufficient enough to satisfy our deep soul hunger. He's the bread of life. He's come down from heaven like manna to take our hunger and thirst on himself, to take our sin and rebellion against God on himself, to bear our shame and judgment on the cross on himself so we can delight in him forever, so we can be set free from our sin. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, your soul thirst and your soul hunger has not yet been sated. It will only be satisfied in Christ. He's enough. Turn to him. Jesus isn't done. He goes on in John 6 to say, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, my life. Christian, do you see how the whole Bible shouts out this theme that Jesus is enough? He's enough. Three millennia ago, Moses writes about the bread from heaven that fed rebellious sinners and gave them life. And then a thousand years later, John comes and he writes of the true bread from heaven, the bread of life, the bread that will never run out, the bread that if you eat of it, you will never die. It's like there's one author in this story drawing all these threads together to bring us to Christ. And indeed there is. And so the question is then, brothers and sisters, Christians, are you nourishing your souls on that bread? Bread that will never run out. The bread that will sustain you. Are you going to that never-ending source of spiritual sustenance day by day by day by day? Not so you can just check it off the list, but because this is where you receive refreshment energy and faith to continue. Christian, honest question. We're in church and it's definitely going to be yes, but say yes now and then think about it later, okay? Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? Or are you looking to lesser things constantly to provide the meaning and the hope that you know only he can provide 
Is it kind of like Jesus plus if that one person likes me again? Is it Jesus plus if I can get married? Is it Jesus plus if my body heals? Or is Jesus enough for you right now? Who is Jesus? In a moment, we'll sing all glory be to Christ. Just listen for a second about how this hymn describes Jesus, the bread of life. It says that he's our king. It tells us that his rule and reign are eternal. It says he is our daily bread, our Lord of love, the great I am, the faithful, the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain, the one who's making all things new, the steadfast light for his people. Friends, as we sing that in a moment, remember that that Savior is all those things. And because he is, he is enough for you. Charles Spurgeon reflected on part of this passage and said, Our Lord is determined that we shall feel and recognize an hourly dependence on him. For he only permits us to pray for daily bread. And only promises that our strength will be equal to our days. And is it not best for us that it should be so? So that we may often return to his throne and constantly be reminded of his love? Oh, how rich the grace that supplies us so continually and doesn't refrain itself because of our ingratitude. Church, this is life in the wilderness walking in suffering and joy with dependence on the one who suffered our greatest hurt so we can know eternal joy with him. This is life in the wilderness as we trudge together in the Christian life towards the promised land. And as we go and as we face hardship and suffering and trials and persecutions, recognizing that he's all we need and that we can keep walking together. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much in this passage, so much that just embellishes and makes bigger and magnifies in all truth who Jesus is. We thank you, Lord, that you're the sovereign author of all the Bible that can Remind us in this vivid picture of your people starving in the wilderness that we are those same people starving without the bread of life, without Christ. We repent of grumbling spirits. And we return again to you and ask that you would fill us up, nourish us, sustain us. You are sufficient for us. You're all we need. Your rule and reign will last forever, and so we give you glory, knowing that you will always be our sufficient Savior, and one day you will be the Savior who comes home, to, uh, comes to us and brings us home to the promised land. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, keep us faithful. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.